Welcome to In Discussion. My guests today are Tom Bowman and Dr. Naomi Oreskes. Naomi Oreskes, PhD from Stanford, 1990, is Professor of History and Science Studies at the University of California, San Diego. Her research focuses on the historical development of scientific knowledge, methods and practices in the earth and environmental sciences, and on understanding scientific consensus and dissent. She's held grants from the National Science Foundation, the National Endowment for the Humanities, and the American Philosophical Society. Her latest book, Merchants of Doubt, co-authored with Eric Conway, traces the way in which a handful of politically conservative scientists with strong ties to particular industries have played a disproportionate role in debates about controversial questions. Scientists who have challenged the scientific consensus about the dangers of cigarette smoking, the effects of acid rain, the existence of the ozone hole, and the existence of anthropogenic climate change. This has resulted in the issues which have had an influence on public opinion and policy making. Oreskes and Conway reached the conclusion that there are many reasons why the United States has failed to act on global warming, but at least one is the confusion raised by Bill Nirenberg, Fred Seitz and Fred Singer. Tom Bowman, my other guest, is one of the premier interpreters of global change, climate and energy science, and green business strategies. He's a social entrepreneur, advisor, communication strategist, and science interpreter. As president of Bowman Design Group, he's led award-winning climate exhibition designs for the Mariam Koshland Science Museum of the National Academy of Sciences and Birch Aquarium at Scripps, as well as the Ocean on the Edge exhibition at the Aquarium of the Pacific. He writes a monthly column on green business strategies and received an inaugural Small Business of the Year Award from the California Air Resources Board in 2009 for generating an annual cost saving while slashing his firm's greenhouse gas emission by 65% in just two years. Naomi Oreskes, Tom Bowman, welcome to In Discussion again today. It's such a privilege to have you both joining me. Thank you. It's nice to be here. It's a pleasure, David. You're both becoming a, a regular participant in, in discussion at this stage. And Naomi, what a wonderful program we had together recently, talking, uh, among many other things, your latest book, Merchants of Doubt, and Tom. We've uh, engaged together for some months here, working together on uh, climate change and all of the other issues that arise. May I start with you, Naomi, following on from our last conversation? With an update in your work that you are engaged in today and any notable occurrences or updates that you may have for us? Well, I don't know if I have any major updates. I think, for me, the one really interesting thing that has come out in the last couple of months was the article in The New Yorker by Jane Mayer about the Koch brothers and their role in funding disinformation campaigns and the Americans for Prosperity. So that was an interesting additional piece to the story about a very tangible link to folks who are related to the oil and gas pipelines. So it wasn't surprising to me. It was consistent with everything we, we know about, uh, but it was definitely kind of another little piece in the puzzle. And it certainly fit with the ideological pattern. You know, she has this great discussion in the book about, in the article about who the Koch brothers are and who their father was and how he was this deeply, deeply anti-communist man who was a founding member of the John Birch Society because he had actually gone to Stalinist Russia in the 30s and helped them build oil and gas refineries, felt guilty about it, and in his own personal guilt became a kind of rabid anti-communist. And so it was a really interesting story about how a kind of extreme ideological position colors everything else that happens later and then contributes to a kind of radicalism that is really unhelpful for understanding the real problems that we face, not in the 1930s, but here in 2010. Well, the way you state that uh, suggests to me that it's almost a continuation of your work from Merchants of Doubt. You're obviously still seeing the same problems occurring. Oh, definitely. And are, definitely. Uh, is this all material that will eventually become a follow-up to Merchants of Doubt? <laughs> well, I don't know. I need to, you know, I need to spend some time on my day job here. So I don't know what the sequel will be, but it'll they'll be one eventually. But I'm I'm letting the dust settle on the first book first. Tom, uh, how about you, sir? We have spent, as I said before, many programs together and had some very engaging conversations. And as you know, in many of those, we did talk about uh, communication, media, 
Where are you today as far as the arguments or the way that we have to engage the public better in terms of becoming more apparent to the, the problems that we face, especially in climate control and carbon emissions and uh, the use of fossil fuels? Well, uh, you know, I was very struck by some of the discussion you and Naomi had in your, in your previous program, uh, and it's become abundantly clear that there's a clash, that what the clash of cultures is between the merchants of doubt uh, and those who fund them, the Koch brothers and others, on the one side, and the science societies and scientific establishment on the other. The world of scientists is about finding, it's about discovery. It's about uh, sort of finding the truth and explaining how phenomena work. And the communication mentality that goes with it is to put forth all of the information with all of the relevant uncertainties and caveats so that the public can make informed choices. On the other side of this game is classic marketing and brand positioning. And the strategy there is to link a proposition you want to make to values that people hold very deeply that may or may not have anything to do with truth or even the subject matter at hand. Uh, and the strongest brands, the, the most effective means of appealing to people, are those that resonate with values that are very deeply held that are hard to assail. And it's time, I think, that those of us who are, who are working in the communication field and confronting problems like climate change really start to take how brand marketing works more seriously. It doesn't mean we have to spin and distort scientific evidence, but it means we have to recognize that what the Koch brothers are funding and what the merchants of doubt are doing in terms of techniques are things that need to be dealt with for what they really are. That is presenting a different picture, a different paradigm in our world. I have the great honor of talking to so many amazing guests. Uh, yesterday was um, Barbara Max Hubbard uh, from Santa Barbara who talked about us facing almost a different stage in our evolution. So there are many of us that are aware that the world is changing, the paradigms of business and the financial markets and the way that uh, money is spent is changing. But is it necessarily an argument or an issue at an intellectual level, Naomi, that is getting through to the masses or that the, or that the people out there in the street are even aware of and, and aware that they need to be as much a part of this as anybody else in the institutions like scientists or politicians or lobbyists? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I mean, on the one hand, I would say no, I don't think the public are aware. I mean, I, I still don't think the public at large, based on the evidence we have about it, really get climate change, that they really understand what's at stake. You know, you, you hear when you go about, you know, I've been doing a lot of traveling to lecture on my book, you know, people do ask questions like, well, if, if there's global warming, why was last winter so cold? And it's not just stubborn people asking that question, right? I mean, it's a legitimate question that a lot of people really are confused about what the issue is and why it's significant why it matters for them, and why it is not something that's just far off in the future. So I think there is that legitimate confusion. On the other hand, I teach 18 and 19-year-olds, and in some ways they're very, very savvy. I mean, in some ways I think they're more savvy than their elders about the kinds of things Tom was just talking about, about the way in which they do live in a world of marketing and spin. And the real problem I think we face with young people is that because they are so savvy about that, because they've been raised in a world that's just seeped in spin, saturated in spin, that they really think that everything is spin, that everyone has an agenda, you know, that no one is really interested in the truth. So you juxtapose that against scientists who still have a kind of almost 19th century positivist faith in facts, and that, I think, is a real disconnect. So I think Tom is exactly right. There's this big gap between the way scientists are trying to communicate which we could say is really, really is a kind of late 19th century faith in facts with a public who are either very skeptical about even the existence of facts or just confused about what those facts might mean. Well, on top of all of this, uh, Tom, we are also compromised, are we not, by the do-consume society that really emerged in the 50s after in, in the post-war years. So you have so many factors out there now where everybody is being compromised and yet I feel with my work the, the greater these programs become 
diversity of guests and issues that, that I come across, it is becoming more apparent that people are beginning to think outside of the box. They're beginning to become more conscious and more aware of the severity of the situation. But, you know, Tom, it seems to me, as Barbara Marks Hubbard said yesterday, uh, will it be in time? Because mm. we are clearly at a, a very pivotal point here where we are either going to pull it all together and become a real community or we are going to be stuck in the traditional paradigm where people are refusing or reluctant to change. Well, I think that the, the great hope uh, in the issue that you've just formulated is something that, that Naomi spoke to in your last program, and, and that is when you swing for the fences, you have a good oppor- you know, excellent chance of striking out. But if you play small ball, uh, if you work at the community level and with, with various audience groups, uh, you can create a momentum that ultimately drives society in new directions. The other piece of research about public understanding and commitments on climate change is that the public is far from monolithic. Mm-hmm. And we need to not think about the public monolithically. There are a large number of people who are, who are alarmed about it, who are looking for something to do, and don't, they don't know that they're part of a large group of people, so they're not self-aware, and, and they don't really know what to do and how effective their own actions can be. Secondly, you know, I mentioned brand marketing, and it's sort of an adage in brand marketing that every strong brand position also has an Achilles heel. Uh, And the great Achilles heel that was exposed by Naomi's book and Jane Mayer's piece in The New Yorker is that people are being intentionally deceived, Mm. and people hate that. And I think that to the degree that the expose of all of that is effective, it starts to cast a different light on the sort of anti-regulatory ideology that's driving so much of the, of the doubt-mongering about climate change and the sense that there's a great cost in doing something, but there's no cost in doing nothing, which of course is false. And if you combine that kind of expose, that, that people are being intentionally deceived, with compelling and convincing stories about small-scale actions people can take that do collectively add up to make a big difference, you create opportunities with certain audience groups to get them motivated and moving. Um, and I think these are the kinds of things that are more likely to gain traction quickly um, as opposed to, to hoping that we create, you know, all in one fell swoop, a sort of revolution of consciousness. I think that will, that's one of those things that historians can discover happened as t- after time has gone by. Right, right? after 150 years. We are talking a wide range of issues here and it reminds me of so many quotations from the past. I remember talking to John Perkins, the author of Confessions of an Economic Hitman when he talked about predatory greed Mm. and in your book Merchants of Doubt, Naomi, we clearly see that and it's still occurring today. We're still seeing the money markets, uh, Wall Street, uh, the City of London, uh, so reluctant to change the paradigm and yet it seems to me in response to you, Tom, that in talking to so many different people, particularly from California, who are getting involved in permaculture or involved in small community, that I think you're right that it will become an overwhelming movement of consciousness in these areas. The only downside that I see that perhaps you both will comment on, you don't want these small communities to become insular, almost as if they're a modern-day monastery, because what happens then is nobody talks to each other, and the whole idea of of mass communication and and a media does not work, because they all become insulated to their own little community, and that won't work either, will it? Right. I mean, I think we we have models, though, for how we can think about networking people who are working on a local level but also aware of what's going on around them. I went a couple of weeks ago to the annual meeting of the Greater Yellowstone Coalition, and that was really a terrific group of people because what they've done there is to recognize that Yellowstone is itself an ecosystem that goes beyond the physical, legal boundaries of Yellowstone National Park. And so in a sense, what they've done is they've created a parallel social and political ecosystem of all the different people who have a stake in the Yellowstone region. So it includes philanthropists, citizens, activists, scientists who work for the National Forest Service, the National Park Service. So it was a very exciting meeting to see all these diverse people who had interests in the area in different ways, but coming together to talk about how to preserve 
this amazingly special place that's both special physically, geologically, biologically, and, you know, in the cultural consciousness of the United States. So I think we do have models for it, but we need to do more to advertise those models and to make people recognize, yes, there is a way to work locally, but still spread and connect, you know, regionally, nationally, and ultimately globally. What would your response be to that, Tom? Well, I think you can even expand on what uh, Naomi said, and I was having two thoughts at the same time. One is that an organization like the National Wildlife Federation is politically extraordinarily diverse. It's really a, a federation of local groups who care about the outdoors for, for widely divergent reasons. You have tree huggers on the one hand, and you have hunters and fishermen on the other, all of whom are seeing change that they don't want to see. So that, that's, the, that's one model for this kind of large-scale connection of, of smaller groups. But the other thought I was having is that, that you can find progress in professional communities, too, in communities of practice that, are very, that you don't normally think of in political terms. For example, the small business community. Um, we've talked in the past, David, about the success my company had in experimenting with energy efficiency, and we, you know, we reduced our carbon emissions by two-thirds doing almost mindlessly simple things. And the, the business case alone, regardless of your views of climate change, is so strong that promoting this kind of, of simple good business practice can start people, other groups of people, down the path as well. If we focus on weather broadcasters, as uh, Ed Maybeck at George Mason and others are doing, uh, focus on public health workers uh, and other kinds of specialists, you start to create a sort of a common language or a common sort of pool of interest around this that comes at people from from a wide variety of directions. And interestingly enough, I've just received from my producer the Yale's Environmental uh, 360 Journal that you sent, Tom, and that that is indicative. And Naomi, I think that that's a, a great example that that you're citing, Tom, as to the very small and slow steps that people are taking. It reminds me, Tom, going back a couple of programs, and we got into a, an extremely good uh, conversation on this, and that is the role of the media in all of this. And I have to say, looking at this, I, I guess this is one of the reasons for in discussions success now is that we we talk about many issues where we're in many areas we are talking people from the political uh, arena all the way to people like barbara marx hubbard uh, talking about the the mother earth father sky concept the idea of all of us really needing to look at nature and pull together in, in order to, to save ourselves when it comes to media if the main media is not going to be able to pull this together and and it certainly appears that they're being locked down more and more and more by the power of the lobbyists, then is a good way to do this for both of you a forum that is developed to bring all of these people together, the naturalists, the business people, uh, those involved in uh, greater consciousness, in meditation. Wouldn't it be a great idea to pull everybody together now into one sort of forum idea that can spread the message that if we do not do something very soon, it's going to go beyond the point of no return? Well, yeah, that's that's kind of a cool idea. I mean, I like that because it's one of those things that's crazy enough that it was just my work. And while you were talking, it made me think about Davos and how there's always so much attention given the mass media to the, um, you know, the meeting. That, uh, I've forgotten the title of that meeting in Davos where all the business leaders and stuff gather. But I always feel like that meeting gets so much attention and in so many ways it's really quite conventional. Uh, and if you could imagine a kind of alternative Davos where you got people who were thinking about these things in other terms, uh, that might create real energy and get media attention. What are your thoughts on that, Tom? Well, I agree. And, you know, the collaboration of unexpected partners is always exciting. And I think that the idea that you bring people from, from widely diverse backgrounds together is, in fact, the key. Um, because we're, you know, uh, <laughs> it was interesting. I was asked to be on, on Fox News recently, local Fox News, to debate Proposition 23 in California, which is uh, partly funded by the Koch brothers in an effort to, to essentially undermine the, the climate legislation in California. You know, they're trying a format that's more like the national version of Fox News does in the evenings, where they set up talking heads on two sides of an issue and have them go at each other. And they're doing it because so many people are simply tuning out the news. Mm -hmm. And I think that the, 
genius in what you're talking about, David, is that if you create something new that gives people an alternative to the, to the sort of tried and true and ultimately very conventional and not very interesting approach that they're getting from mainstream media, there's a chance it might kindle something. Well, there's clearly a huge divide, and Naomi, we talked about this in our program, and I'm sure that we covered it as well, Tom, between the scientist in his box, the businessman in his box, the politician in his box, and then uh, all of these other categories of people who are trying to find desperately a way to survive in this changing world in in a economic situation which is clearly getting worse and worse by the day uh, and it seems to me that it would be wonderful to pull all these people together this brings to mind tom a program broadcasting shortly turning the wheel founded by an extraordinary individual elena shaw who has created a venue for allowing people around the country to become spiritually conscious through self-expression in dance and movement leading I guess ultimately to self-awareness and then enabling trust in community and it really offers a wonderful platform in bringing people together such as yourselves to join them in opening up hearts and minds to the better understanding of each other's role in society and community. Well, you're speaking to, to one of the reasons I remain fairly optimistic. I mean, like so many of us, I think I have my good days and my bad days when I think about climate change and sustainability. But I think there's a huge undercurrent uh, in our culture of, of dissatisfaction with the status quo. Sure, we're all caught up in consumerism and all those other things. But there's also a sense that if you throw the right switches, uh, people can be mobilized around things that they would care more about maybe relatively quickly. Uh, and the trick is to find the catalysts that actually work. And, of course, we're always up against those human emotions of ego, selfishness, uh, victimization, codependency, and everything else. Fear. But on the other side of those, David, are the other, uh, the other strong motivations we have, which are community, communitarianism, survival of the group. Right. I mean, I think one of the in most interesting studies to come out of recent psychological research is that the most effective treatment for depression is to volunteer and in organizations that help other people you know and i think that's so telling because it shows that whatever the genes are for competitiveness and selfishness there's also a strong human impulse towards helping other people and we feel better about ourselves when we work together and do help other people so it always becomes this question of how do we tap it we know that people have the capacity for greed avarice fear but we also know people have the capacity for love generosity and hope right mm -hmm. so how do we tap into the second part i think that's the big really big question that faces us well i believe that it's intentionality it, it, what we think is what manifests generally so i think it's a question of being positive may i just turn to technology i've been talking to the the likes of dr Irvin dardick who is working with light waves and they're actually now uh, at the university of columbia working w with water and cold fusion to actually power cars and bicycles and mopeds etc and it seems to be fast moving and it appears to be something that's going to uh, manifest itself uh, quicker than we can believe and probably uh, in a more succinct uh, and and with more clarity than than even those other forms of power that we have been talking about wind power if those can be utilized and they can be brought up to uh, an expedited level where we can have those working within the next couple of years how do you think tom that will help uh, the issue of climate control and bringing in people, bringing in the public to actually understand better what we need to do on a local and a national level? I, I sort of conceive of this as two steps. The second step is sort of the one you're describing, where the public in mass is crying out for alternative technologies that provide cleaner you know, forms of energy and better energy efficiency and that kind of thing. Um, and that requires creating a marketplace that allows those those things to flourish, and that, of course, depends on some regulatory decisions by policymakers, which are always contentious and always, you know, those, are, those tend to be embattled policies, at least for some length of time. And it takes, you know, potentially a decade or two for the new technologies to get to the market and start to penetrate the market in ways that make a difference. If you want to speed it up, you've got to encourage it with policy and that kind of thing. 
I, I kind of think that the first step is to help people recognize the power of simple energy efficiency upgrades based on technologies we already have in the marketplace. Energy start technologies, you know, simple things. Um, replacing lots of machines in your office with one machine that does a lot of different things. Um, you know, that's, that's the nature now of a, of a printer, copier, fax, scanner. You can get rid of five pieces of equipment and just have one. CFL lighting and soon LED lighting. These things are kinds of things that can cut people's energy use literally in half. A hybrid car can cut your gasoline usage in half. And these things can all happen very quickly. They help people save money. They start to create a, a they could start to create a culture that embraces efficiency and the next round of technologies that carry us forward. Now, in reality, probably these things happen concurrently. Yeah, I think that, you know, what Tom just said is really important, and it, it's, it's a complicated issue because we know from history that sometimes technologies come along that really do change life very dramatically and sometimes pretty quickly, but more often that's not actually the case. And more often, I think we expect technology to be a kind of magic bullet. We're looking for the magic solution, the magic cure. Um, and that's kind of a weird thing about human beings, because as Tom's own work shows, often we can actually solve problems with a whole set of smaller, less dramatic, less exciting, less sexy solutions, but that actually really work. And it's kind of a mystery to me why it's so incredibly difficult for people to adopt energy efficiency technologies given how much we know and how much experience we have that shows that they really do work, they really save money, they really make a difference. Well, if you look at the light waves technology at Columbia University that Dr. Dardick is involved in, where they are literally finding a way to power pretty much any vehicle simply with water and cold fusion, uh, looking on to the dark side, but one has to look at uh, these problems. And looking back at your book, Merchants of Doubt, Naomi, there are going to be parts of society, there are going to be corporations, there are going to be the giants and the corporate mansion who are going to push back against that simply because it does uh, have an impact on traditional fuels. That is possibly you know, one of the main areas that could bar any progress towards cleaner energy. Would you agree with that? Well, yeah. I mean, I think this is, of course, it's always part of the problem with any attempt to have social change, right? That you have people who will benefit from the change, but you also have people who will lose from the change. And right now, we live in a society where the people who will lose from the change that is to say, if we, if we stop using fossil fuels as our primary source of energy, those people are incredibly powerful. And although many, many people will gain from energy efficiency, many people will gain from new energy technologies, many jobs can be created in the green technology sector, the people who will gain from these changes are not as powerful as the people who will lose. And I think that's what we're seeing. Tom mentioned Prop 23, which is being funded largely by the oil industry, uh, and the Koch brothers just you know, donated a million dollars to the Prop 23 campaign you have some very powerful, very, very wealthy people fighting to preserve the status quo, and I think that is part of what we're up against. I think that's exactly right. And in order to get beyond these endless skirmishes, and Prop 23 is just one of many, probably, that are coming down the pike, if we reduce our dependency on these powerful folks by simply reducing our own, you know, becoming more energy efficient as individuals, uh, we literally reduce their power right away. And that creates opportunities to recast this. It doesn't mean that they won't fight even harder going forward, but it starts to change the underlying conditions in societies that surround the whole problem. This would have been indicative, of course, two, three hundred years ago when you had implosions in society of mayhem in the streets and people burning houses. Is that something that could happen now or is it going to be a more gentle movement? It seems to me that if there is a greater majority that's building, that is going to push up against what I call the corporate mansion, wrongly or rightly, that they are going to be at some stage here overcome simply because of the fact that if they're not, we are going to see a world that will never find itself and will actually Im implode on its own. Well, I think that's where the regulatory framework and the federal government and, and state legislation really is so important, because I have to believe that people in the major oil companies 
are intelligent people who do not want to commit professional business suicide. And if they know, if the federal government or the state governments send very clear signals that they are moving towards green technology, that there will be strict regulatory standards on greenhouse gas emissions, and that those standards will be enforced, then I think there are many people in the corporate sector who will say, okay, fair enough, we can respond to this, we have alternatives, we can move forward. Uh, but if the regulatory framework is uncertain, if it's changing, if it's a patchwork quilt of 50 different things in 50 states, then I think it creates more incentive for the corporate sector to simply stall and delay. Well, I think you're right, but uh, I've just been reading an interesting book by the former CEO of Shell in the mm. United States, and he makes a, a pretty compelling argument that the oil industry is not monolithic either, mm, that right. the, the companies are in fact competing against one another, and they have very different views of how to respond to regulation. Um, and his argument is that Shell and a few others tended to embrace regulation earlier than, than ExxonMobil, Valero, and Tesero, the, the companies that are sort of behind Prop 23 in California right now, that are pushing for the status quo. And it's kind of interesting that, that in California, it's not the oil industry across the board that, mm. that's pushing Prop 23, but it's a few companies and other companies are likely to see an advantage in not being aligned with them and in getting ahead of the curve in response to regulation so they're well positioned. There's no question that the more stable and predictable the rules of the road are going to be, the faster and with you know the faster businesses will move in the direction we want them to go. Um, and the more uncertain it is, the the more they'll pull back and hesitate about making big investments in that direction. Which is why it's so incredibly important for us here in California to defeat Prop 23. That's right. right? That's absolutely yeah. right. It yeah. may be one of the most important measures we've ever seen. Well, my uh, immediate response to that would be, and it's a question for both of you, is who is going to be behind this regulation? If government is not going to step up, uh, state government is clearly in a fairly poor position at the moment because of dwindling tax revenue. Is it going to be some other sort of organizational platform who steps up here and takes over as a middleman in creating this regulation? Well, I think states are very important. I mean, we've seen how California has been a leader, not just, you know, today in green technology, but, you know, throughout the history of air pollution control, catalytic converters, California has been a leader. So I think what happens on the state level is extremely important. And one reason I often like to think about the importance and efficacy of states is that many people feel disempowered with respect to the federal government. Many people feel Washington is incredibly far away and possibly dysfunctional, whereas people don't necessarily feel that way about their state governments. People may, in fact, know their assemblymen. So I think there's a, a less of a sense of hopelessness about state governments than there is about the federal government. And the same in Canada. You know, I was in British Columbia recently where they have a carbon tax. And, you know, British Columbia is not that gigantic a place. People there feel that, they, that their voice can be heard. So I think the state and provincial level is a really important place to vest hope and energy. I think important things can happen at that level. Tom? I completely agree, and I think that though we do have to sort of prepare ourselves for an ongoing onslaught like prop of things like Prop 23 because the states are so effective, and since California has been an, a leader on environment for such a long time, uh, it, it seems that that California's leadership is likely to, to come under attack again and again in the coming years until there is a more stable and multi-state sort of structure. In fact, there was a, a PowerPoint that was released from Tesoro. They were out trying to get British Petroleum and others to sign on to this Prop 23 campaign, and one of the key points that they made in their PowerPoint presentation is we want to stop the spread of these kind of regulations across the country. Well, there you go. That's the proof, the very fact that they're trying to stop it shows that it could, in fact, be powerful Exactly. And That's exactly right, and I think right. there's great hope in that. Right. So that really, really speaks to some of the things that we as individual citizens can do in our own states to support and defend these kinds of legislation. Can we just go back to the technology? And Tom, I'm so grateful for you sending me this uh, Environment 360 piece, mm -hmm. because one thing that I'm noticing is that there is no doubt that we are shifting. I think that not only is business corporately shifting, but people are definitely shifting in consciousness here of where, where we're going and what we have to do very quickly. 
But one of the things that came out of this article is that two or three years ago, it would have been prohibitively expensive to do anything, whether it's putting solar panels on top of your industrial unit or changing your printer, carpooling or, or whatever that is. But this is actually a very positive article in that somebody is able to do something and it's not at the expense that it would have been two or three years ago. Well, the, the real point of the piece is that we are collectively failing to take advantage of our best opportunity. Uh, Secretary of Energy Stephen Chu has said that energy efficiency is the proverbial low-hanging fruit. We've got to do that first. Everyone agrees. And so what I set out to do with my company was to sort of experiment with the business case for improving energy efficiency. And, and I wasn't any smarter than anyone else when I began. I thought I should put up a solar electric system and, and solar hot water and, and a new roof and all that stuff, none of which were, the, were things I could afford. And the changes that we made were, with the exception of, of replacing a small SUV with a Prius, every other change we made were the kinds of things that you would do when a lease expires. A lease expires on, on your copier, you go out and get the most energy efficient one you can, and you discover in the process that if it's multifunction, you turn off other things and decommission them and lo and behold you save money on energy but you also save money on maintenance and supplies and all the things that go with that this is the kind of of getting to first base in very practical terms that any business can integrate uh, can implement right now and and you know we're saving so much money by having taken these ordinary sorts of steps with a key with energy efficiency as one of our key metrics that it's sort of a no-brainer to do this so, Tom, if it is a no-brainer, then what do you think stops other businesses and families from following this model? A couple things. One is nobody knows. Yeah. I didn't know. I mean, when I got our emissions report after having made these changes, I thought, well, gee, we didn't do much. We didn't put up solar panels or anything. So maybe we cut our emissions 10% or something. We cut them by two-thirds. I know. I see it this. Was, it's in your article. They have a nice little graphic shock. about that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that's what got me thinking this had better be publicized. Yeah, yeah. So there's a, there's a huge just lack of information about it. Media doesn't cover these kinds of things because it's not sexy. Yeah. There's nothing sexy about renewing a lease on your copier. You know, well, again, so that's the thing. The media are looking for the silver bullet, the exciting new development, as opposed to, as you just said, here's a whole bunch of small things you could do that make a big difference. And this, exactly. is, this is what amazes me, is in my world now, with the programming that I do, I, I meet so many people. I meet people uh, out in the public. I meet uh, scientists and great leaders. And a lot of them, I have to tell you, have no clue about the severity of the problem. And if you talk about climate change or the severity of that issue, they really don't know. They're not armed with information. They're not educated to understand it. And they are still stuck in the old paradigm of believing and thinking that we're all going to return back to an economic situation that we had in the last 20 or 30 years. So it really is down to ignorance at this stage. I think that's largely the case. And no one has really made a compelling case that energy efficiency is really to everybody's advantage. Um, the truth is my company is saving $9,000 a year by cutting its emissions by two-thirds. Now, that's, that's good news. You know, $9,000 a year doesn't hurt, but we're a $3 million company, so $9,000 a year won't make or break us. Mm. The truth is I did it because I, I felt compelled to do it, and I wanted to see what was possible. And I only got there because I've done so much work on climate change that I'm one of those rare business people who really understands what the implications of climate change are. That's not the case for most people either. So, so we sort of have to unravel the problem of motivating people to take it, advantage of these opportunities that are right in front of them for a combination of preventative reasons and simple self-interest reasons, good business kinds of reasons. And that's going to take some work that, that currently isn't... <laughs> when I talk to the Air Board here in California and others who, who deal with small business, they, they sort of see us as a gathering of of individuals who don't want to pay attention to anything. And, and in many ways, they're right. That's who we are. And so there hasn't been a coherent effort to reach out to this audience. And I would make the argument that the audience is actually so large and that the moves they could make are so easy 
that it's a good way to start shifting the dynamic in how people think about these problems. Now, that takes me on to the next area. And, Naomi, I would like to start with you, if I may. And that is, it, it seems to me that it's essentially going to be individuals or communities who lead the way with this. Uh, by default. Going back, though, to the scientific community, they are still going to be very important in this transition of making so many of these incredible technologies a reality. Are we still going to be degraded in that area because scientists are compromised uh, by the establishment? Are we still going to be slow in allowing scientists to bring this technology to these communities? Well, I think you need to distinguish, we need to distinguish between science and engineering. And I think this is a really crucial moment, and and it's something that I worry about a lot. Because most of the crucial work about climate change up until now has been done by scientists. The scientists who study the changes in the climate system, who have demonstrated the increase in global mean temperature, who have measured the increase in carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, who are measuring ocean acidification, all of those things that tell us that these changes are underway and that the patterns are consistent with the human cause. So this is incredibly important work, and I have unending admiration for my scientific colleagues who have done this really path-breaking work. But I think we're in a kind of social bind now because we need to do something different now. What we need now is not so much further additional details about the climate system, although I'm not saying that we shouldn't continue to do research. I'm not taking an anti-intellectual position here, so let me be clear about that. But further refinements of the global circulation models, uh, those are not the crucial issue for us right now. The crucial issue for us now is moving towards solutions. And for that, we need, I think, to invest a much greater amount of human and financial capital in engineering solutions. And we see engineering schools beginning to take an interest in this. There's certainly plenty of engineers around the company working on improved photovoltaics and more efficient wind turbines. But it's not getting the kind of attention it really deserves. And again, it gets back to that. It's not that glamorous, right? Increasing the efficiency of a photovoltaic cell doesn't sound like a very exciting thing to do. And I have to honestly say that I think the scientific community has not been that helpful here because it's the instinct of scientists to always want to do more science and to always want to push that envelope of discovery that Tom was talking about a moment ago. And that's totally understandable. It's who they are. It's what they do. It's what they've been trained to do. It's what they love to do. But it isn't the most important thing that society needs right now. So I do think that we need to have a greater focus not so much on the basic science, but on the applied science and engineering. It would be a great act of altruism and civic virtue if the leadership of the scientific community, if the president of the National Academy of Sciences, who has the ear of the president of the United States, could say, of course we love science, of course we want more science, but even as scientists, we recognize that this now is largely a problem of engineering and engineering solutions. And that, no one in the scientific community has said that. The second piece that's closely related to that is the issue of social sciences. I've spent most of my life, you know, at the interface between the natural sciences and the social sciences, and although it's better now than it used to be, the vast majority of natural scientists still tend to view the social sciences, social sciences as inferior. But we need social science desperately right now, because no matter what we do, our climate is changing. And even if we were to stop all greenhouse gas emissions tonight which obviously isn't going to happen, we would still be looking at at least two degrees of climate change. And that means we're going to have to be dealing with climate change and adaptation to climate change no matter what. And adaptation is a social scientific issue. We need to understand how people respond to social change. We need to think about how to prepare for it. And we are just not doing that work at all. So, Tom, would you agree with me that possibly this whole movement and the evolution of our world, which I truly believe is another evolutionary process that we're facing here, and it is certainly approaching very quickly, is going to be created, developed, acted out by individuals, by communities more than it is or has been in the past by uh, scientists, by academia, Do you think it's simply going to be people power that we see what is happening to our world and create the initiatives on their own? Well, I think uh, my crystal ball isn't that good. I suspect it's going to be a variety of things all at once. I completely agree with Naomi that we can soften the blow of the changing climate 
if we focus not only on research and development in engineering and in social science and apply these skill sets to the problem, uh, but also focus on communicating what, you know, the IPC is divided into three working groups. Working group one looks at the physical basis of evidence, and that's what all the communication has been about almost exclusively. The second group looks at what the impacts are and, and how we might be able to adapt. Third group looks at how we might be able to reduce emissions and what sort of economic models work and those kinds of things. And so to the extent that there's an overall master program of, of trying to solve this, we really need to pour our communication efforts into those two areas, as Naomi said. Beyond that, I, I think that the climate itself is going to drive a lot about how we respond to this. And the degree to which we sort of self-consciously prepare for it the softer and smoother those kinds of transitions will be. Certainly, small groups and individuals have the capacity to respond faster than federal government does. But ultimately, this can't escape federal attention. It's going to take. It's going to take everything we've got. We always return to this word communication mm. because we're clearly lacking in communication. And uh, I'm not about judging anybody, but it's clear to me in my circles now that the main media is r rapidly failing because they're basically dealing with uh, 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 the, the completely different areas of society that have absolutely no parity with what we're talking about here. So we're looking at different media, we're looking at different communication, we're looking at bringing people from all walks of life into areas where, for example, you work and bringing a pool of talent, a pool of gifts together that acts primarily in order to change all of this and to act so that we don't get to the position where it is too late. Uh, do you think, Naomi, that we could get it to a position where we've just dropped the ball and we just won't be able to uh, reconnect and, and save all of this? Well, you know, like Tom, I like to think I'm an optimist, but like Tom, I have good days and bad days. And the last <laughs> few days haven't been so good. Um, <laughs> You know, I think to some extent we have dropped the ball already. You know, writing Merchants of Doubt was a depressing experience because I learned a lot writing that book. And one of the things I learned was that the science was deeper and more well-established and more long-standing long than I had even realized as a historian of science. And to realize that we have, you know, to realize that global warming was predicted, accurately predicted in 1965, to realize that we had people, major reports of the National Academy of Sciences and other federal committees in the 1970s calling for action on this issue, and here, you know, to realize that legislation was introduced into Congress in 1988 to control greenhouse gas emissions as rapidly as possible. I mean, these are sort of depressing things to realize, and so it really feels to me like we have wasted two decades, and those are two decades that we can't get back. Ice melts, there's no getting it back. So, so that's a part of me that feels quite distressed. Having said that, you know, I do think that we still have time to save, to protect us from the worst catastrophic outcomes. Uh, we don't know if we've passed a tipping point, so we have to assume that we have not, and it's not too late. Um, so all of these are reasons to act and not to give up. Um, but I do think that the issue is getting more and more serious and that the potential for, you know, really, truly terrible things is getting more and more real. What would your response be to that, Tom? Because I, I would add to that, Tom, before you do respond, how is it that we can reverse the response to somebody like Al Gore, who in many circles has been so demonized for his work? He is going in the right direction, and yet society seems to have such a great disinterest in the sort of work that, that Al does, how, how can we change society to actually realize that this is phenomenally important now? Well, we've been watching uh, uh, with the Tea Party, with the last couple of election cycles, with the Koch brothers who are staunch, almost mad libertarians. We have watched a really strong ideological rise in this country, and that ideology is in some ways our biggest problem. Um, because it's not about finding solutions, it's about denying that the problem exists altogether. And Al Gore is an, an, almost an inevitable victim of that because he was a politician. Uh, he was on one side of the issue. Climate and because he was and, right, and people didn't want to accept that. 
Exactly. And I think we, it's important to depoliticize climate change. And as Naomi has pointed out, the merchants of doubt largely appeal to things other than science. And one of the things they appeal to is sort of a fear of a global government, of a government that's less about the people, um, losing our autonomy, losing the kind of ideals that Americans have, have about independence and free markets and entrepreneurialism and all that kind of stuff, the American dream. And this is, at the very beginning of our conversation today, I talked about brand marketing. That's the kind of branding that I'm talking about. Climate change has been linked to global government, loss of independence, loss of entrepreneurial spirit, high costs, uncertainty, doubt, all those things. And the thing always to remember, this is the thing that keeps me hopeful, is that in every brand position there is an inherent Achilles heel. And the, the issue is to activate that Achilles heel effectively, which, you know, Naomi's book and Jane Mayer's piece in New Yorker are hugely important pieces of work, I think, more so than a lot of people recognize, because it, it starts to expose what's behind the ideology about this. And if we're going to depoliticize climate change and make it a practical kind of problem to solve, we have to understand the politics that's driving our doubt so that we can actually strip that away and look at the problem as a problem and apply solutions to that problem that actually work. And in that, Naomi, in my work, I'm solution-led, uh, narrative-led, and constantly positive. <laughs> but would you agree with me, having heard Tom, that we still need people to look at the darkness in order to get to the lightness of where we need to go in this world? Oh, absolutely. I agree with that 100%. I mean, I think, in a way, that's how I read what Tom just said, how I read Tom's reading of my own work, and that's, in a way, why we wrote the book, because... We can't solve this problem if we don't understand its character. And so by shedding light on the darkness, we're able to say, look, here's what's driving it. Let's talk about it. Let's get it out in the open so that we can respond to it. Because if we don't acknowledge the true character of the problem, then I think we'll, we'll always be tilting at windmills. Naomi Oreski, Tom Bowman, it's been a great privilege to have you on the program today. Actually, I would love you to come back on another program. And also, before I sign out, I would like to talk to you again and consider some sort of uh, roundtable with uh, leaders in other areas uh, like Barbara, Marks Hubbard and others in the very near future. That would be great. I'd be very interested in doing that. And I'd be honored to do it, too. And to our listeners today, I hope that you have enjoyed this program as much as I have and gained uh, more information about where we need to go in the future. You can gain information on this and any other program in the series at davidgibbons.org. Meanwhile, wherever you are, good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. David Gibbons in discussion welcomes listeners' comments and viewpoints at its blog at davidgibbons.org. This programming is supported by organizations and firms in the private and public sectors.